Johnny Cash. Well, I am not Johnny Cash. I do like the song Chicken in Black, though. Chicken in Black, yeah, that was a Johnny Cash song. Look it up, it's very funny. <clears throat> okay, so enough funnies for this morning. I'm so glad to see our visitors here today. Miss Brenda, it's good to see you again. Chris and Mitzi, I see you there you are. And there's others. Glad to have you. We have been starting through the book of First Peter. <clears throat> In the last two weeks, we only covered five verses. Uh, because the opening, uh, I don't know what you call it, salutation, I guess, greeting in the book of First Peter is so packed with information just in the meanings of the words that it took two sermons to just get through the 30 words that I had underscored in the first five verses. <clears throat> so that's where we're going to start off. Uh, one, the, the, the message that came through very strongly in those first five verses is this, the eternal security of the believer, that regardless of, of how we feel about our condition, that if you've received Christ as your Savior, your position in him is secure forever. Now, these are two separate ideas, condition and position, and we're going to talk about both of them again today. <clears throat> but let's start in verse 5, because that's where we left off. The last concept we talked about is the fact that you are kept by the power of God, not by your ability to stay holy and clean, and not by your ability to drum up a lot of feelings of faith and piety and things like that, but by you're kept by the power of God and the promise of God. <clears throat> but it says you're kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That was the last of verse 5. And we need to talk about this idea about salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Because the people he's talking to, they're already saved. So why is it salvation that's going to be revealed in the last time? Let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your Holy Spirit to give us light as we study your word, that you'd help us to understand and to apply it to our own lives to look at the mirror of God's word as we saw in the book of James and realize the mirror is for us to see ourselves, not our neighbor, not our, our somebody else, but to see ourselves and to recognize what needs to change in our own lives and to walk away remembering what we're needing to learn. We ask these things in Jesus' name. <clears throat> so we're going to read verses 5 through 12, uh, speaking to these people, these believers. They were Jewish believers, probably scattered because of the persecution that happened in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, if you want to go back and read that. <clears throat> he says, You who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We saw that through faith, that's the avenue by which we approach God. It's not what saves us, it's that's the avenue by which we approach Him. It's His grace that, we're, that saves us. Unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than, than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory, glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, though you... Though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, <clears throat> receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. 
of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister these things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. There's quite a bit there, but we're gonna, that's where we're going today. <clears throat> so the first thing we want to consider is the tenses of salvation. And we think of tenses in terms of past, present, present, and future, and that's, that's correct. Uh, there is another tense that we don't use very often. It's called perfect tense. And it means something that happened in the past, but it has permanent results for the future. The only example I come up with real easy right now is that when you try to turn in, try to redeem a coupon in a store, and they say, I'm sorry, sir, that coupon has expired. When did it expire? Well, sometime in the past. Well, how long has that expired? Permanently. It's never going to be good again. That's perfect tense. So when Jesus said you've crossed over from death into life, the, the tense there is perfect tense. It means you have permanently, sometime in the past, crossed over from death into life. And he says how. We're going to talk about that. But it has a permanent result for the future. You've crossed over permanently. You aren't going back. Okay? This is an important concept. It has nothing to do with your condition. It has everything to do with your position in Christ. Right? So... We have been saved from the penalty of our sins. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified, which means declared righteous, being justified by faith, we have, present tense, peace with God. So the justified portion was perfect tense. So sometime in the past, I've been declared righteous by God, and it has a permanent result for the future. How many of you saw Lot as a righteous man in, a, in the story of Genesis? Nobody? No, neither, neither did I. But God says he was a righteous man. First Peter, uh, Second Peter chapter 2. God says he was a righteous man. Uh, why? I mean, my goodness, look at his life. Nobody believed he was a righteous man. No, but God knew what was in his heart. See, he had made this crossover, but he had lived as if he didn't know the Lord, and as a result, his testimony was terrible. But yeah, he was a believer. And if God didn't tell me, I wouldn't have known that. Because all I had to look at was the Genesis story in Genesis chapter 19. I would have thought, no, he's, he's definitely a lost man. Well, I've been wrong, see. God knew his heart, and God says so in Second, Second Peter chapter 2. We're not going there today. <clears throat> We've been saved from the penalty of our sins, Romans 5.1. As a result, I present tense have peace with God. It means I'm no longer seen as his enemy. You may have felt like you never were an enemy of God. God says we all started off that way. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us, the just for the unjust, that we might live unto God. Second, we are being saved, present tense, continuous. We're being saved from the power of sin in our lives. We've been saved, past tense, permanent permanently from the penalty of sin. That's perfect tense. We are being saved in a present tense continuous from the power of sin in our lives. Romans chapter 6 and 7 tell me I do not have to sin anymore. Romans chapter 6 flat out tells me I do not have to sin anymore. 
Sorry, that's not my experience. Well, it wasn't Paul's experience either. Romans chapter 7 tells me of his struggle between his old sin nature and his new nature. His new nature wanted to walk with God, and his old sin nature wants nothing to do with that. There's a struggle going on. There's a war going on. This is where conditional truth steps into to play because how I respond to Jesus today is going to say whether I'm walking with him and whether my new nature is what's being lived out in my life or whether it's just my old nature again. The Holy Spirit can save me from the presence of from the power of sin today if I choose to walk with him. If I don't, well, then I'm right back where I started, living just like I was an unbeliever. I'm still saved, but I'm living as if I wasn't. Okay, that's conditional truth, right? The third is the future tense. We will be saved from the presence of sin because your position is in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says that you are already seated with him in the heavenlies. You can read it. That's what it says. Do I have to feel that way? No. In fact, I don't feel that way. I've never felt like, yep, I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Sorry, that's positional truth, and it's beyond me to understand it. I don't feel that way. I don't see things that way. It's, but that's a fact. God says so. I'm already seated with him. Okay. There will come a time in the future when that's a visible, physical reality for me, and I recognize that I've been forever saved from the presence of sin. I'm never going to see my old sin nature again. I'm never going to be tempted again. I'm never going to be disgusted and revulsed by the, the terrible things that happen in the world again. I'm never going to have to read the news again. Okay? That's a reality. But it's a future tense, and it is, again, positional truth. Because I am in Christ... By the way, that's where I am, seated with him in the heavenlies. I'm not just in some chair off in the corner someplace. No, I'm seated in Christ. God says so. That's positional truth. So those are the three tenses of salvation. And the recipients of this letter had been enduring persecution, it seems. And it may be the one that we see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, where it says that, a great persecution arose in Jerusalem. Now, remember these people, these Jewish believers, had come there from all these other nations that's listed in Acts chapter 2, uh, from Phrygia and all these, I don't remember the names of all these different countries they came from. But they were Jews who had been scattered earlier under the, under the uh, dispersion under Nebuchadnezzar and under the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, even before that. So there were hundreds of years they'd been living in these other countries. Not because they wanted to, because they got moved there by a foreign king that took over. Uh, the captivities that we read about in the Old Testament. Well, they'd grown up there, but they still, now that they're free to do so, they went back to Jerusalem for these feasts. And they were there for the Feast of Tabernacles when the day of Pentecost came. So these thousands of people that were saved on the day of Pentecost and the days following in Acts chapters 2 through 4 and 6 and so forth <clears throat> were people from all these other countries that were Jews who had come in for the Feast of Tabernacles. But then in chapter 8, we see, Acts chapter 8, we see this terrible persecution arise and they scattered. Where'd they go? Back home. Well, they wanted to stay there in Jerusalem because of the gospel, but they went back to where they came from, these, these countries that had been scattered in, and they didn't go home empty. They took the gospel with them. Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says, wherever they went, they took the gospel of Christ with them. 
By the way, that's how we're supposed to do it. When you go home, you take the gospel of Christ with you. Okay. So they were rejoicing. They were assured by Peter that the last chapter, so to speak, is going to bring their deliverance. They knew that the Lord's coming back. They didn't know when, neither do we. But they knew he was coming. And they're rejoicing in advance, knowing that they're going to be delivered from that from the, from this persecution. The word that's translated salvation in both the Old Testament and New Testaments, one's Hebrew, the other's Greek, but both of them, it means deliverance, to be delivered from something. Uh, and the word savior in both the Old Testament and New Testament, it means deliverer. Uh, that's why Moses was called a savior in the Old Testament, not because he's our savior from sin, because he's the one that got him out of Egypt, and he sent the judges that freed them from slavery to various different nations down through the years. And each of these God referred to as a savior. It means a deliverer, a hero. Somebody is sent to kick out the bad guys. Okay. So they were looking forward to Jesus as the savior. And we tend to think of Jesus as the only savior because in terms of salvation from sin, he is the only savior. And that's the way we tend to think of salvation. But there's different tenses to salvation. And for us, in our lives, Jesus is the only Savior in all three areas. So whether it's physical persecution or freedom from the power of sin in my life or freedom from uh, fear for the future, he is, he is the Savior. And the fact is, even if he chooses to not spare me from some current danger or disease or persecution or whatever difficulty, he's still the Savior. He didn't choose to, to deliver those people from the persecution they were experiencing. Some of them, and this wasn't just like being unpopular type persecution. It wasn't just getting kicked off of a team or something or, or losing a job. They were having their goods confiscated according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, and they received it joyfully. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we see some of them were tortured and killed for the sake of Christ, and they received this joyfully. Okay, the real persecution, not just unpopularity or somebody saying bad things. Okay, every one of us dies of our last illness, as a rule, unless some accident or other calamity beats sickness to the beat, to the punch, so to speak. Uh, a cousin of mine was murdered by a stalker. Okay, she didn't get to die of her last illness, but another cousin, her brother, died of a COVID thing just a couple months back. Okay. Both of them faced what we face in Hebrews 9.27. It says, it's given unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. And that particular judgment for believers is the judgment seat of Christ, where our works are judged, not our sins. Where were your sins judged? At the cross. Okay, Your sins were judged at the cross. Your works, good, bad, indifferent, are going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. That's for believers. Okay. That's just a fact. That's a positional truth. Because you're in Christ, you're eternally saved from the eternal penalty of sin. Jesus said in John 5, 24, you're never going to face condemnation from God. That's positional truth. You will never face condemnation from God. By the way, while he was saying that, you've, he also said you've crossed over from death into life. And he also said you have eternal life right now. You're not waiting until you die to find out whether you made the team. 
John 5:24. You ought to memorize this. It's a great source of comfort. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has, present tense, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but has crossed over from death into life. That covers your whole past, present, and future. You ought to be able to grab onto that. Okay. That's all positional truth. In the end, he's our savior from the presence of sin. This again, positional truth, because we're in him. That's our position. We've already been placed there by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. It says that we were by one spirit baptized into one body of Christ. That's how you got there. You're, you're invited in by grace. You approached in faith. You're placed there by the Holy Spirit, and you're there permanently. Okay. Your eternal position with him is secure forever. And regarding that, that's what they're rejoicing about. Verse 6, he says, Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations or testings. That's what the word testings, uh, temptations means. Now remember, the reason they were rejoicing is their salvation in Christ. The word wherein is in reference to the salvation they just mentioned in the previous verse, verse 5. So these believers were under intense persecution, and their response was to rejoice greatly. They were not just hanging on and hoping the Lord would bail them out. How come? Because a lot of times I get down to just hanging on and hoping the Lord will bail me out. How come they were rejoicing greatly? Well, verse 7 says that the trial of your faith, the testing, the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The trial of their faith was producing praise and honor and glory to God, and they were aware of that. And they were rejoicing over that, knowing that how they responded to life's trials was bringing glory to God, or not. See, there's that conditional truth thing again. If I don't respond well, then it does not bring glory to God. It shames him. I've known believers who literally shamed God by their behavior. So have you. <clears throat> the trial of their faith was producing praise and glory and honor to God. This is the one of the purposes of trials. The way we respond to testings can either produce glory for God or not. We can read about more reasons for sufferings over in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 11. I'm not going to go there today, but I listed... I think I remember I listed 13 different reasons for suffering from God's perspective in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. <clears throat> he goes on in verse eight, verses 8 through 10. He says, Whom not having seen, you love, and in whom, in whom though, you, uh, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Now see, these Jewish believers, none of them had met Jesus during his earthly ministry. <clears throat> if we're correct that these were the believers from the day of Pentecost and the few days after that, uh, months after that, in Acts chapter 2 and thereafter, uh, then they were not even living in Israel during Jesus' life on earth. 
they're living in all these different Scythia and all it's one of the other countries, all the other countries that he said they came from. And actually after two he named maybe half a dozen countries that they had all come in from. And if that's them, then they didn't live there. The first their first time to be there in recent years was there the day of Pentecost for the day for the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's where they heard about Jesus' ministry as the Savior. That's where they heard that he had died for their sins. That's where they believed in him and received the Holy Spirit. That's where we see the beginning of the church. Okay. And they were filled with joy. They wanted to stay there because of the gospel. But as the persecution arose, they went back to their homes and they preached the gospel there. And the church began to, to grow. <clears throat> Now Peter's de declaring the nature of their relationship with Jesus in, in three things. He says they have not seen him, but they love him. Okay, that's kind of true for us too, isn't it? And the closer you draw to him through his word, through prayer, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life, the, the more you're going to learn to love him. I used to feel like, uh, I don't know you, how can I love you? And then one day I was reading something and it occurred to me that that Jesus is in the other believers. And there was a specific man, he's a good deal older than I am now, but he, he, was, a, he was training to be a missionary, same as I was at that time. And uh, I suddenly realized I see Jesus in Bob Malloy and that I love what I see there. And if that's what I'm seeing, then that, yeah, I can honestly say I love Jesus. And as I've gotten older and as I've learned more about him and walked with him more I've learned to love him personally not just as I see him in other people but I could start there I could start by seeing the change in other people's lives the kindness and the humility and the wisdom that he's pouring out through other people I learned to love him even though I didn't see him and they were still not seeing him but because they believe in him see there's where I am today because I believe in him I'm rejoicing with unspeakable joy and filled with his glory, okay? And on a conditional basis, when I am not trusting in him, what happens? No joy, no glory, see? Condition matters too. Condition matters too. <clears throat> and finally, it says that they are present tense. It says you are receiving, present tense, the result of their faith, the salvation of their souls. You see, this is another example of these three aspects of salvation. Their souls were already saved. They're already delivered from the grip of the evil one forever. And they were looking to Jesus for daily deliverance from the power of sin in their lives. But they were confident in him for ultimate deliverance. They knew they were going to stand before him forever. Those are the three tenses of salvation that we see. And Peter goes on to remind them that the Old Testament prophets wanted to know what they're knowing now, but they didn't get to. By the way, this is one of the places in the Bible where I find out that the prophets did have the Holy Spirit in them. Because, see, that's not a normal thing for the Old Testament saints. The prophets did have the Holy Spirit in them, but the rest of them, they didn't. That's new. The Holy Spirit wasn't given yet. That was made clear in the Gospels. And the Holy Spirit came to live in every believer on the day of Pentecost. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it flat out says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. So in this age, in the church age, yeah, that the, the moment you were saved, whether you knew it or not, the Holy Spirit took a, took a residence in your, li in your life, in your body, and you have become a temple of the Holy Spirit, whether you knew it or not. Okay. 
So these, these prophets in the Old Testament, yes, they had the Holy Spirit living in them. David was aware that in that time it could also be taken away. That's why in Psalm 51, he said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. See, it wasn't a permanent thing for him. It is for us. It wasn't for him. But the, the, Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. I'm not going there today because we're not going to have enough time. But in Ephesians chapter th 3, Paul makes it very clear that none of the Old Testament prophets knew anything about the church age. They didn't even know that there was going to be such a thing as a body of believers drawn out of both Jews and Gentiles that together would be one body in Christ. He knew nothing about that. The Old Testament prophets knew nothing about that. You see, it was after his ministry on earth. It was after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, and after the giving of the Holy Spirit that that was revealed. And funnily enough, the Old Testament prophets knew all those things up to and including the giving of the Holy Spirit, but they didn't know anything about the church age. By the way, they also could see the coming tribulation and the second coming of Christ and the kingdom age, but they didn't know anything about the church age. A classic example is in Daniel chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, where he describes everything up to the crucifixion. In verse 26, he says, Then shall the Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And then it skips directly into the tribulation, talking about the prince that shall come, shall make a, uh, a covenant with many for one week, and after three and a half days of that week, three and a half years, will break that covenant. And this... Uh, See, what do we call it? The desolation. Uh, come on, what am I saying? The, something of desolation. The abomination. abomination of desolation. Thank you. I suddenly couldn't think of the word. The abomination of desolation is going to happen there. What is it? Well, in the New Testament, we find out that the, the Antichrist is going to set himself up as God in the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, But in the Old Testament, it skips straight from the crucifixion to the tribulation and in less than half a verse, went straight into the abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. Okay. Why? Because the Old Testament prophets knew nothing about the church age. So that prophecy that covers everything from the day of Nehemiah, this is not Nehemiah Jr. who's here, Nehemiah in the Bible, all the way through to the crucifixion and beyond, all the way to the end of time, skipped the entire church age. So we've got a great big gap there in, in prophecy. Why? Because it was a secret. It was a mystery that wasn't revealed until the proper time. And it's revealed in Ephesians chapter 3. You can read about it there. It says, They were searching what or in what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified before them beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Yeah, it did talk about that. But nothing that was in between. Isaiah 53 talks about the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Messiah. But Isaiah also pre predicted the judgment that's going to fall during the tribulation and the kingdom age that would follow. Isaiah predicted all kinds of stuff, but he didn't touch on the church age. None of the prophets did. <clears throat> and it says in verses, uh, verse 12 here, it says, Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, did they minister these things which were reported unto you by them which have preached the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. 
In Daniel chapter 12, the last chapter of Daniel, and almost down to the last verses, verses 8 and 9, Daniel complained to the angelic messenger, saying, I don't get this. I don't understand what you just told me. Well, guess what? I don't either. Uh, and what did the angel tell him? This angelic messenger, whoever it was, told him, it's not for you. It's for the people of the end time. And he told him very succinctly, write it down, close it up, and run along. It's not for you. And Daniel didn't get to know about that. I, there's a lot of prophecy in the, Old, in the Old Testament and New Testament I still don't understand. I look at it and I think, all right, I, I'm, I guess people at the very end time will see this very clearly, but right now I don't. Okay. Uh, there's some that have become clear in just the last 50 years. You remember where it says that every nation will be warring against Jerusalem right at the last minute when Jesus comes back? I used to think, you really in every nation? I mean, why would like Costa Rica be sending soldiers to Israel? Guess what? They're there now. The UN peacekeeping troops have members from every armed force on the face of the earth. Anybody that's part of the UN sends soldiers to be part of the UN peacekeepers. Even little places like Liechtenstein and and you know Luxembourg and Leprechaun and all those other little places that I never don't know where they are. They got like two soldiers there, but they're there. Okay, so the UN peacekeepers that are in the Middle East right now do represent all the all the armies of the world. And if at any time in the future they turn against Israel, then yes, you will literally be fulfilling to the to the letter this thing about all the armies of the world fighting against Jerusalem. Interesting. Okay, what about this thing about that when Jesus comes, every eye shall see him all over the world at the same time? Up until the internet and live newscasting, that kind of stuff, that was physically not possible. Now it's, it's every day. You know, how many of you watched the planes crash into the towers? You know, and and they do stuff live now where you, you're watching right while it's happening. Okay, but that wasn't possible 50 years ago. It wasn't possible 30 years ago. I know some of you are young enough you didn't grow up not knowing what a computer was, but I'm one of those that. And I'm not really, really old, but I was one of the beta testers for dirt when it first came out. <clears throat> so, the, the issue is that none of these prophets got to know anything about the church age. They knew nothing about it. And, and yet, they were rejoicing in advance, knowing what was coming. Furthermore, in, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, the tail end of the well, middle of the thing, about from verses 8 through 11, it says that God's eternal purpose before the world began was through the church, that's where we are now, I don't mean this church, through the church at large, the church age, would be known, made known to the angels, the holy angels, the ones that are in heaven. It says to the principalities and powers and so forth in heavenly places, so the holy angels would be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Before he created the world, that was his purpose, to demonstrate his wisdom to his angelic hosts that already existed. He'd, he'd, in, he'd created before the world had begun. What a mind-boggling thought. And yet I find it encouraging, too, because it means that maybe some of all the things we muddle through somehow is a blessing and a source of education to these angelic beings that are so much wiser and smarter than we are 
but they don't get to experience the things we do, and they want to. They want to see what they want to see how how's that work. We're showing them. You're showing them. Okay. And we can rejoice in that fact. So joy is a choice. Now, I have a hard time with that statement because so many times I fail to make that choice. But the fact is, joy is a choice. So I'm, don't feel like I'm pointing that at you, I'm pointing that at me, because I know that I fail on this continually. When I fail, is usually because of ingratitude, unthankfulness, and unbelief. That's what it boils down to. <clears throat> We're so ensnared by what the world tells us that we have a hard time looking past what we see with our eyes and seeing what God is showing us behind the veil, so to speak. Okay, and we need to do that. We need to look at the reality that's there behind the veil. The fact is, these persecuted saints were rejoicing with joy unspeakable. They were overflowing with joy at the sheer privilege of walking with God rather than complaining because they didn't like the circumstances. And I'm constantly having to confess unbelief and ingratitude to God because I'm whining all the time about some little thing that I don't like. You know, rather than realizing much of the world is short on food, short on clothing, short on shelter, uh, unsafe, enemies all around them, and I got plenty to eat, obviously. I, I, I'm in a relatively safe place in a warm house. I got a loving wife and family and friends, and they're lacking all those things. And these people were rejoicing with joy unspeakable because they looked beyond that at the privilege they had of being a child of God and the privilege they had of actually walking with God and helping to work with him and reaching lost people for Christ. That's the job. They're working with him in that. I'm distracted by these first world problems to the point of ignoring God's provision. When I open my eyes to God's provision, it changes my perspective. I know that joy is a choice. Joy has to be a choice because the command in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You see, whenever there's a command, there's a choice to obey or disobey. So joy is a choice, whether I like it or not. Okay, so what if all those provisions, the visible, tangible ones that I just mentioned, are all taken away? So that's where faith had better be the real basis of my relationship with God. If I'm only thankful when things are the way I want them, then I'm guilty of what Job's friends were accusing him and what, what Satan was accusing him. If you read in Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan accused Job to God saying, well, yeah, he serves you. You bless him all around. He's rich. Everything is good for him. Why wouldn't he serve you and love you? So God allowed Satan to take it all away. And Job's response was to fall on his face and worship. Yes, he tore his clothes in grief. Yes, he dumped ashes on himself in mourning. But he fell on his face and he worshiped God saying, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do I respond that way when things get tough? Or do I whine? I whine. Okay. Job handled it pretty well. Now, after a couple of weeks of his friends tormenting him, friends, yeah, good friends, tormenting him, his, he was starting to get pretty bitter and he was starting to say some stuff he should not have say, and God straightened him out, but he rebuked his friends. The friends were wrong. 
You want to remember Job's troubles didn't come because of sin in his life. God says so. You can read Job's chapters 1 and 2. God said he was a good man. He was doing good. All those rough things that happened to Job did not come because of sin in his life. God says so. Okay? So I think it'd be good for us to consider the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk is only three chapters. If you haven't read it, you haven't got any excuse. It's like two and a half pages. It's little. Habakkuk saw the wickedness. He recognized the wickedness in God's people. And he pleaded with God to clean them up. And God replied that he was sending the Chaldeans, who we call the Babylonians, to punish his people, the Jews. And Habakkuk was shocked. He says, you can't do that. They're more wicked than we are. And God said, yeah, they are. And I'm going to use them to punish the Jews, Israel, Judah, I think, specifically in this case. And then I'm going to punish them even more because they are worse. So they're going to get theirs too. And Habakkuk accepted what he heard from God, and his conclusion was in the last three verses of the book. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, he says, and I wrote it down because I've memorized it in the past, but I always forget chunks of it. Fe uh, not Ephesians, my goodness. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, he says, Although the fig tree sh shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the, olive, uh, the labor of the olive shall fa fail, and the fields shall yield no fruit. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. And there shall be no more herd in the stalls. Now see, these were all things that Israel associated with the blessing of God. When they had all those things, it was because of God's provision. When they didn't, it was because he was holding it back. He says, although it's all going to be taken away. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. A hind was a type of deer that liked to live up in the high crags, mountain places. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places to the chief singer on my, on my stringed instruments. All the things Habakkuk listed were what Israel considered to be blessings and provisions of God, and they're all going to be taken away. This time it was because of sin. It was because of sin in this case. But Habakkuk chose, he said, I will. He chose to find his joy in the person of the Savior, the God of his salvation. He saw that God was going to lift him above those trials and make him walk on these high places. God can lift you above the pandemic. He can lift you above the the you know, recessions and depressions and the, and the dangers and the sadness and the trials. He can put your feet on high places and make you very sure-footed so that you're consistently walking in those high places. And then it says he gave the message of the, this message from God to the musicians to make a song about it, evidently so that he and others could sing of the joy of the Lord. Choosing to rejoice might include choosing to sing about it. it might include singing about his goodness his provision in your life I know it helps me to focus on his goodness when I sing of his grace and his mercy but praying and actually verbalizing thanks gives help as well and we can choose to do these things let's go ahead and pray <clears throat> Lord Jesus we we know that joy is a choice we know that you're the provider in our lives we know that you're the savior in every sense of the word in our lives and we so frequently fail to see your face in your provision, to see your hand 
in our lives, to see your fingerprints on our lives, even though they're so big and they're so plentiful, they're everywhere for us to see, and we still fail to see them. And because we fail to see your fingerprints in our lives, we also fail to rejoice and to give thanks. We ask that you change that, that we would learn to look, to continually look for your fingerprints in our lives and look to you for our provision and rejoice before you for the daily bread that we're receiving, whether it's little or much. We ask that you transform our lives so that we can glow in the dark world around us, be lights in the world, that we'd be a good testimony for your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.